1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. top comics, Abbott and Costello, petrified, but hilariously. <laughs> Plus the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. Plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and if you were listening to Is It Yours on our last episode, you heard me and my stellar panel discussing and waxing poetic about The Wolfman from 1941. Well, I've got the same crew together again today, and we are here now to take a similar but different approach as we look at Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein from, <clears throat> excuse me, from 1948. Uh, so quickly, because as far as, well, you've all waited two weeks for this. We've only gone a couple of minutes. So I'm going to introduce everybody quickly. We have uh, my my regular co-host, Mr. Sean Whalen, along with David Weeder, Jason hey. Giaconetti, and Tim Elliott. Hello, everybody. Hello. So again, we're taking a look. We are, you know, kind of doing a change of pace for our horror time uh, on Is It Yours and looking at the comedy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which has been part of my viewing regular rotation as long as I can remember from back when, you know, Channel 11 used to show Abbott and Costello every Sunday morning and I would get it up and I'd watch them every Sunday morning because, you know what, in my world, it beat going to church. Um <laughs> Ooh. This has always been a favorite, favorite one, and, and I know Davis not happy with me for saying that. <laughs> okay. But anyway, <laughs> I was a kid. What could I tell you? Uh, but but this has always been a favorite of mine. But it wasn't until I got older 
that I realized that the beauty of this movie is Abbott and Costello are playing every scene as if this is a comedy. And the Universal Monsters are playing every scene as if this is a Universal Monster movie. And nobody comes out of character for one moment, even when they're interacting with each other. And it's brilliant. It's kind of like the Muppets Christmas Carol before that ever occurred. The mixture is just so potent it works. Yeah. Yeah, that was always my take on the Muppet Christmas Carol is it works because Michael Caine never acts as if he's talking to Muppets. And the monsters never act as if they're talking to Abbott and Costello and Abbott and Costello, while they will make jokes about the monsters and, you know, we'll, we'll get a uh, Lou Costello's, you know, stuttering and whatever. They never miss the comedy beats of it, which again, is pretty amazing when they're actually interacting together. Yeah. I think, I think this movie, once again, I'm not going to bury the lead. I think this movie is brilliant. I think it's one of the best. It, if, if I make my list of my top 10 to 20 movies of all time, I guarantee you this is somewhere on it, in on my personal list. This is an absolute favorite of mine. Well, it works as a as a comedy and as a horror, because to your point, Paul, that the, the, the horror elements are acting, playing it straight, and Abbott and Costello are playing typical Costello. It works the way like Shaun of the Dead works because Shaun of the Dead works as a horror film and it works as a comedy because right. it takes itself seriously. So yeah, I, I agree. I I think it's a it's a it's a great balance between the two. Right. Well, comedy is the the comedy is not comedy with a K. It's the absurdity of the situation that you're in, like at times, much like Shaun of the Dead. Like, but but instead of like. And, and I understand, like, there are there are some amazing lines. There are lines in this movie that are just phenomenal, um, you know, kind of. And that's, that doesn't even do how much bridge work she even had, um, because you got to pay a toll every time. But the idea is that, like, like everything is done so well um, in that, like, the way you would watch a universal, you know, because, again, Frank, you know, whether whether I mean, because this is this is a sequel. In theory, the direct sequel kind of to the the Wolfman. Well, it's not direct sequel. That's it's it's too like House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, those things. This is that sequel. It just is the next movie in what you would be expecting from him. And yet, Avin Costello played that straight. You see, they not straight. They they play. They're not purposely going out of their way to make things zany or crazy. Um, in that the it's not a it's not like the Marx Brothers to kind of another, like about the same time, the Marx Brothers stuff, like there's just crazy stuff happening in some of those movies, but that, but stuff that's straight is what makes it funny. What happens here is you have a, a, a movie that is, if you removed Avin Costello out of it, this is a universal sequel to the other ones, right? But mm-hmm. the movie doesn't work without them. I just want to throw this real quick because uh, I, I know, I, I know, I know I always say it's, it's hard to find numbers, the estimated budget for this film was a whopping eight hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money in nineteen forty-eight. Sure. The gross on this movie is over four point eight million dollars. Let that sink in for a minute, folks. Eight hundred thousand dollars is a it's it's a lot of money today too, but it's a lot of money for nineteen forty-eight to make a movie. It grossed over four point eight million. Over 4.7 million in the U.S. alone. That's crazy. Wasn't it the biggest grossing movie of that year? It was. Or at least, but that, yeah, or, yeah. I mean, I'm, there might be one that technically, technically, maybe made more money, but percentage-wise, it's 100 percent there. But think about how crazy that is. This is a comedy with Universal monsters in it. This isn't. Gone with the Wind, this isn't Citizen Kane, this isn't, like, this isn't the Academy Award, you know, the, you know, the, you know, like, like, uh, Robert Downey Jr. always said, there's two types of movies, the kind of movies that make money and the kind of movies that win awards. I like the ones that make money, you know, kind of thing, that's what, you know, but it's true, like, this movie made a ton of money, and I think that's one of the reasons why this movie is still, I mean, it's, it's such a great movie, but this movie was put, brought back and brought back and brought back every, they started bringing it back because, 48 TV was still in its infancy, infancy, you know, kind of thing. There wasn't even like, let's show this on shock theater. Shock theater didn't exist yet. So, or yeah, 48, I think it's right before shock theater came out. Here's what it does. I think it's put Evan Costello back. Sorry, Sean. 
I think it put them back in the uh, like the top grossing because they were I guess yep. they were in a slump and it kind of put them yep. back in the uh, top ten. Yeah. Well, you know, before they made this, they had done the time of their lives and uh, I forget what the other one was, Buck, which were Buck too much. No, not, not not Buck Privates. That's not what I'm oh. thinking of. There, were, there was the time of their lives and I can't think of what the other one was, but there were two movies that were written as starring vehicles just for Lou Costello because the two of them had broken up and then they were brought back together by, by the time the movies were made. Oh, Little Giant was the other one. I couldn't remember. Oh, okay. uh, the two of them were written just for Lou Costello. They were going to just be starring vehicles for him. But then they uh, they got they got Abbott to come back. So they were at the tail end of their careers, or at least it appeared that way at that time. And they made this movie, and this movie was such a hit that they went, you know, they ran with it. Then you got, you know, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Abbott and Costello meet the kill of Boris Karloff. You know, they, they went for, for the... Uh, for the horror, you know, elements. Uh, I think Hold That Ghost predates this, though. It does. Hold That Ghost mm-hmm. does, yep. This is it's, a gag that they took off of that in, in this. Yep. I, what but really this, worked in this, with Abbott and Costello in particular, was the fact that, yes, there's silliness in this, and but it was silliness that was so well integrated into a well-told story that it enhanced the story it added to the story it made you like especially you know costello in particular made him endearing made you care about him and all of that but it was never intrusive and never got in the way of the story that was being told because sometimes you can do silliness for the sake of silliness and it takes you out of what was in there this was i mean the writing on this was really strong which i I gotta my exposure to Abbott and Costello before watching this film was limited to seeing them on a ground round screen where it was there's music playing in the background. I never really hear the dialogue. I'm seeing silliness go on on the screen and never really got the full effect. If you were to ask me to the point of Marx Brothers earlier, like, what are your favorite black and white comedians? It would have been the Marx Brothers. I love the Marx Brothers. I, I really adore that piece. And I always have said it's because of the. Yes, there's silliness and craziness, but there's smart comedy that's there. Boy, does this one nail smart comedy. It's different. It's a very different flavor than the Marx Brothers. But I thought that this film did a great job because you're telling again, it's a Universal Monsters movie. And if you're walking in wanting Universal Monsters, you want to feel that vibe. I I felt last last episode we were talking about the Wolfman. I feel that this belongs in that canon. And and that's something that is very hard to do when you're adding so much comedy into this. And well, the dialogue a, is very sharp. Yeah, it's so yes. sharp on this. I um, think one of the reasons it, work. it works is because of the chemistry between Abbott and Costello, where Abbott was the premier straight man, so he always played it. You know, he was always, I mean, he, he would be over the top when he would just start smacking Lou around or something like that. But he was always the straight man. So now you're adding the straight man to the Universal Monsters and you're pulling Lou and his silliness along with it. But it wasn't, it as you, you know, as you brought up, it's not just integrating the Marx Brothers into this where they're going to be making fun of everything that's going on. They didn't do that. They never, in fact, they never made fun of it. It would, they let the scenes create the comedy and their reaction to what was going on around them and lose fear of everything that was going around and the fact that Abbott didn't see what Lou saw until the very end. I mean, how many times do they say it during the movie? I saw what I saw when I saw it, you know, <laughs> and and then and you got to kind of run with that and that's the reality of this movie. And it's one of the brilliant conceits that they have is to combine the two. And and I, I just, you know, I can't say enough. I, I love Abbott and Costello. Like I said, I used to watch them every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. They would show one of their movies, for, you know, for an hour and a half. Uh, on, and, and I would I watch them regularly. This is by far my favorite Abbott and Costello movie. No question about it. Well, also, Universal Monsters, they're not bereft of comedy at all. Invisible Man has a, a quite a, a bit of comedy. So does uh, Bride of Frankenstein. It's nice to have that levity. So this just sprinkles that throughout the whole movie. And if it had been like the Three Stooges, this would have been a, a, a non-starter. It's the fact that you have the sharp comedy, the straight man and the, and the goofy guy, and they work so well. That makes this just separated from anything that could have occurred. 
Because this could have gone downhill quickly. <laughs> and you have a lot of, you know, the the plot, you know, you said the dialogue is really sharp. The plot is very sharp. The plot is very, very well structured with these exhibits coming over to the horror museum. Uh, and, and it's how they, they're basically smuggling Dracula and, and Frankenstein's monster in, into the country so that they can put a, a, a new brain into the Frankenstein monster and, and, and have it, you know, be more controllable by Dracula. And, and this, you know, Bela Lugosi is so entwined as Dracula in our minds that you don't realize this is only the second time he's ever playing the role. I mean, it, it's it's amazing when you think back to that. Uh, and but just the whole plot where he's going to be controlling the monster who's going to do his bidding and, and he's going to, you know, get lose brain in there because he sent somebody to, to pick out a, a brain that could be compliant and, and that he could be able to control easily. And Lou fits that role. Sandra's <laughs> motivation on this was something that totally struck me as like being way cool because early on I thought they played that really well where she's coming in and she's very flirtatious with them and, and, you know, basically ig- ignoring Abbott, you know, through the whole pro- chip, you know, through the whole process. But, um, but I loved that you're like sitting there wondering what is the attraction to him? Is it because here's the thing. He's likable. He's, you know, you get the idea that he's cuddly and humorous. And so you can kind of get why a woman would be attracted to him for the sweet endearing part that he is. But then you, then the reveal comes in as far as what her motivations really were. And that made sense. Everything in this film that they were doing, you know, where it was either where it was humorous or, or, you know, a plot twist or something like that. I love that it made sense and it, it made the film that much more engaging. You're going through to your point. Humor is something that's not alien to Universal Monster movies at all. I like that in in incorporating Abbott and Costello into this, we didn't lose that like this movie made sense and I really wanted to follow the story. And when I, I was mad at her <laughs> because I like, I like Costello so much. And as, uh, as the movie went on um, that, that part was just really like nobody, like at the end, the poor guy, none of the girls liked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you also have, it, it's cool. Cause you have the, they, they both have ulterior motives, but you have the triangle with, uh, with what you the, I can't even think of the names, but there's Joan and then there's the other one, Sandra, uh, San, Sandra and Joan, uh, and and then you know, and then Abbott's like, you know, well, why can't I have one of them? <laughs> you know, there's definitely some elements there, uh, and and the the motivation of Larry Talbert to try and stop he them. Him the third. He gave him the third girl. Yeah, because <laughs> you see that girl. If I, well, no, that was a different girl because that was the girl he was on a date with who had so much bridge work every to kiss her he paid a toll. Uh, but the other thing, as he said, he goes, "What was the third girl? Well, why don't you take her? You know, if I had two cigarettes, I'd give you one. If I had two, whatever, you, why don't you put on your hat, put on your take your cigarette, and go for a walk? You know, kind of things." So. But I, I think cut, no. I didn't mean to cut you off, Paul. But I thought that part was so yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 the meld of comedy and horror. Uh, that works so well, and it's it is it's light horror. I mean, to be fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not you know it's 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 clearly intended that you could present this to a younger audience without fear of it being a, a you know nightmare inducing problem. Uh, although some of the elements in in the castle towards the end do get a little hairy, uh, and and I could see where you know a young uh, where a, a much younger child might be you know, frightened by it to some extent, especially when uh, the the Wolfman and, and Dracula are kind of coming at each other with the, uh, the table with, with Lou on it in the mid- in between them, uh, you know, but I, I, I really enjoy the interaction and, and it's a point where the serious and the comedy come together. This, the interaction between Abbott and Costello and Lon Chaney Jr. Because they are, having quite a few different conversations. And again, they're both playing it from a different way. If you, if you watch Lon Chaney Jr., everything about it is totally serious. And yet they're giving the comedy lines in response to him. And, and he's, 
getting more and more frustrated with just trying to get his point across, but never seeing the comedy involved and, you know, never uh, becoming a parody of himself either. Well, it's that wonderful line where he says, in 30 minutes, I've become a wolf. And <laughs> you and that's 20, million saying, million yeah, you guys. 20 million other guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to real quick throw this in, so because you mentioned the the parts where they get in the the near the end. Uh, so obviously Glenn Strange here is your Frankenstein's monster. Uh, Glenn, literally I try to get in English. Glenn Strange is the Frankenstein monster is what Don Post based the mask off of from the Don Post mask, which is what most people, if you ask them to describe the Frankenstein's monster, they are actually describing. Glenn Strange is the Frankenstein monster from this movie because uh, that is what most people remember because this is the most famous version in mask form nowadays it's very very specific which frankenstein you're getting from which movie and which part of which movie um but in this movie lon cheney did not just play the wolfman and larry tell but he actually mm-hmm. is frankenstein as well when he throws sandra out the window sorry spoiler the movie's 80 years old get over yourselves um <laughs> he throws her out the window because glenn strange broke his ankle and here's the best part. You can tell when Glenn Strange has a broken ankle because he's trying to walk at the end and he walks pretty well. And then some parts he really can't walk at all. And you're just like, oh, I feel bad for Glenn, um, especially somebody who was a stuntman on Westerns uh, that he broke his ankle literally doing probably the easiest, quote unquote, role he had to do. Um, but he didn't, he didn't jump off a horse or anything crazy. Uh, but yeah, so that is uh, I just want to make sure I throw that in there because th- I always love that. And my daughter now knows to look for it. Um, you know, she's like, oh, I can see it's different because uh, Glenn, Glenn Strange, the makeup was kind of thrown. It was the the pieces of makeup were designed for Glenn Strange's face. And they kind of cobbled it together to make it into. But you can see it in there. Like when you kind of catch his you face. Chaney, oh, my God. It's not even close. The same face. But especially since we know Lon Chaney was the Wolfman, uh, the Wolfman, he, obviously, but he was the he was Frankenstein's monster in Ghost of Frankenstein. And originally, they had decided they they were going to originally shoot Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. Chaney was supposed to play both roles, but they said there's no way we can do that. The makeup takes too long, so that's why Bella Lugosi, in an ironic twist, is cast as the Frankenstein monster in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman where he at one point during the fight puts his arms up to turn into a bat, but doesn't. So, uh, <laughs> just throw it out there. I, so I there, are, there are three Frankenstein it. monsters in this movie then, because you have Glenn Strange, you have yep. Lon Chaney, and then yep. you have the puppet at the end. It's literally a marionette puppet <laughs> when he's walking into the fire. Uh, yes, yes, there is. <laughs> that that seems a little intense. Thought yeah, that Bela Lugosi made the my least favorite Frankenstein monster just because his face is so obviously Bela Lugosi. Well, uh, the, the other problem yeah. is he's also too short. Frankenstein's monster should not be shorter than the Wolfman, and then in other scenes taller than the Wolfman because he's taller than I'm here, <laughs> and in other movies he's taller. Anyway, the, the no. one thing I wanted to say, I real quick, sorry, real sure, quick, go ahead. Is um, people always kind of say to me like, you know, um. I mean, most people know, and if you know me at all, I'm a teacher and I talk for a living, you know, kind of thing, right? Um, and when I was trying to learn how to do that, because it didn't come natural, to talking in front of crowds and stuff, some people can do it, and I was never a problem for me, but, like, learning how to do, how to time things and how to pace things and stuff like that when you're teaching, especially when you have a captive audience there, you know, your, your students, a lot of people say, well, how would you learn how to do those things? Because I work with new teachers who are god-awful at teaching, and I always say to them, I said, well, do you, did you ever watch like, and I'd say Evan Costello. And they're like, no, because most of them are like, you know, 20 and they don't know who that is because they were born, you know, in the 2000s. Um, and I was like, well, that's where I learned. I learned from professional wrestling. I wish I was kidding. Professional wrestling and from comedies and stuff like stand up comedy, be whether it be Jerry Seinfeld or like things like that, or like Evan Costello or something like that, or the Marx Brothers, how to use timing, how to use things, how to like those zinger one-liners, how to throw those things in where they need to be, how to put that pregnant pause in. And this movie has so many of them in it. There are lines in this movie that literally, I wish I was kidding. And now I saw this movie when I was about three years old. And so did my daughter when she was three, you know, just 40 something years difference in time. Um, but you know, the 30 something years, excuse me. The whole difference is that like she's, we say things from this movie as just everyday conversational things that are just part of what we are. Right. It's funny because those things stick with you. If the, if it wasn't funny, if this movie was not funny, 
this movie would not be as beloved as it was. If the if the universal stuff wasn't as good, it wouldn't be as beloved. But the timing and the way things went, and considering that it took a fifty thousand dollar advance to Lou Costello because he said, I'm not doing this. My daughter could write better garbage than this. <laughs> they gave him fifty grand. He goes, Well, fifty grand. Well, what's the old, you know, you know, <laughs> money talks, you know, kind of thing, right? Um, it's amazing how well <clears throat> Everything still worked together, considering where Avon Costello were at this point in their careers, considering how old Bella was getting at this point in his, in his, you know, his life, considering where, you know, Cheney was, you know, in his descending in line. Cheney lived for a number of more years, but he was in bad shape, like literally just in a drunken stupor on the sets of The Mummy and stuff like that. So there's a lot of pieces and parts in this whole thing. If there's one thing I could say that might be missing from this, that there was never a place where Boris Karloff was part of it. He doesn't mm-hmm. need to be. But I think because Karloff comes later, I mean, we have Boris Karloff in Abbott Costello meet uh, Dr. Mr. Hyde, I mean, you know, kind of thing like that. We have him later on. But I think some people had said, well, they should have got Karloff to be the monster. Karloff was not playing the monster. The, he played the monster in, what, 1932? This is 16 years later. I don't know about you, but 16 years ago, I was in way better shape than I am right now. I'm just saying. <laughs> and and yet, with the same passage of time, Bela Lugosi is still great as Dracula. Well, I think the difference is, though, this is definitely a more, um, how to put this? Uh, I don't want to say plump Dracula because that was Lon Chaney Jr. He was the plumpest Dracula ever in Son of Dracula. Um, and I don't mean that to be derogatory, but it's true. I've never seen a Dracula so he, a, a so well he's fed. He's a puffy Dracula. Yeah, he was well fed. Yeah. He, is, he was well fed. Um, you know, what I'm saying is, but Lugosi, I think he's able to do it. But also, think of what Lugosi's doing in this movie. He's not doing, like, there's not a lot for him to do. There's not know? a lot of physical acting. I agree. Yeah, because, I mean, the fight, scene, the fight scenes with Cheney, he's holding the chair which is a prop chair. He does whatever. And he's, he's not, it's not like it's good Lord. He is not doing what, what Christopher Lee was doing in Dracula movies. I'm just saying he's not scooping anyone off their feet and carrying women across the thing. And there's no crazy dives across thing like him and uh, Peter Cushing and stuff. So, um, but like I said, it's, it's always in, in, in something when you see it and when you know to look for it, you a hundred percent, especially cleaned up. Especially when you watch this movie cleaned up, you can tell when it's Cheney and when it's not, when it's, when it's uh, Glenn Strange and, and when it's the marionette puppet. So, <laughs> uh, Thunderbirds at one point, that's what that is. <laughs> now, what's interesting in this is, they, so they have that some of the silly sequences where, you know, Abbott and Costello are going down to the basement and we've got that false wall where it's flipping around. And you have the Frankenstein monster, you have Dracula, and you have the coffin, and they're flipping around. What was really, I thought, sharp about this was the fact that they would do scenes like that. There was It was a humor and comedy, and yet those monsters still felt menacing. Yep. Like, and, and yet there was silliness going on, but it was almost for lack of a better thing to put it on Scooby-Doo level in the sense that you still felt like they were being chased and you felt like, you know, at any point in time, this could go wrong. And you're like, like, how are they going to get out of this? And I really appreciated the fact that they did that. The other piece that I wanted to mention, and I'd be remiss if I don't is going back to Lon Chaney as Larry Talbot. For this film and any film I've seen him in, one of the critical keys is liking him, liking his motivation and believing at those moments that he genuinely wants either a redemption story, wants to help out. He cares about people. Um, He the tragedy that we talked about last episode, the Greek tragedy of, you know, his stories and things like that, you know, tragedy is surrounds him. But. This guy, you know, has to be locked up every night. Or if he's not locked up, he's a danger. He runs into sequences in this where he does not want to 
be the wolfman, does not want to hurt anybody, but yet he also feels the need to help out and help people escape and keep people alive because he cares. And it's even when he's reluctant because of the hour, he still steps up and proves like Larry Talbot's actually a really good guy, human and flawed and things like that, too. But he's the writing of him is pretty critical in this to my enjoyment of this film because it's a well-rounded piece. Like I love what Abbott and Costello are doing. I enjoy the humor of it. This one really made me a believer in them, but you got to make me still feel that this is Larry Talbot. I love Larry Talbot and Wolfman really made me a believer in him. What you have in his performance. And it's interesting because I don't know how much of it is him acting and how much of it is his life at that point and how much he got beat down by life. Uh, but he plays the part in this movie as extremely world weary. He's just had enough. He, you know, he, he's got no sense of humor about anything. He's got no lightheartedness. He just wants to stop Dracula from, uh, executing his plan and he's going to do whatever he has to do to do that. And, and I think it comes across exactly the way it should for the movie. Again, I don't know how much of that is just a reflection of his own world weariness in real life and how much of that is his performance. I, I can't, you know, I can't separate it. Uh, but for the movie, it's it's perfect. It well, really I think just what works, if that Paul is like, when the movie opens, we open with Cheney on the phone trying to get to, I think he's trying to call Florida. So he's like he stepped in from another universal horror, and he kind of is the only one that knows what's going on. Right. So he's aware of Dracula. I think he's. I don't know if he's yeah. aware of Frankenstein or not. So that links it to the universal horror films that brings it into this film. So that's like a through line. And then you yeah. can bring in Evan Costello. So I, I think that helps that he's the only one that is seems to have a sense of urgency and have a sense of what he what needs to be done, and he's trying to stop it. And, and Abbott Costello just kind of floating through oblivious to what's going on. Now, as, as a young kid, I loved, and to this day, because I loved it so much as a young kid, it doesn't bother me at all. But is there anyone who's bothered by the extremely cartoony sequence when Dracula turns uh, from a bat into a man or vice versa? No. Nah. I think it's great. I think it's I just I, I just remember as a kid just loving that. Yeah. Uh, but and and I don't know how much of my continued loving is is nostalgia for that, just because you know I got such a kick it, out of it. But it but it still works. Like it still mm-hmm. like like okay. So I mean, in in more recent times, we've literally seen like them, you know, like people turn into a werewolf and you see their bones breaking and they're breaking out of their skin. Like that's not what this is. You know what I'm saying? Like Cheney turns into the Wolfman by the same dissolves kind of thing. Like it's just. You know, it's it's one of the things that you're kind of like, well, that's how it works. You know, he turns into the bat. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. It could have been like those cheapy movies where it's like, oh, I'm a bat. Poof. And there's a puff. <laughs> you know, there's a bat and a stick. I mean, that'd be god awful. Um, but, you know, it's it's it, it's even though you can kind of you, you see that it's not, um, you know, you, you can tell it's animated there. It also fits with the quaintness of that goes with the times and the movies. I mean, it's still the 19 it's still 1948. You know, I mean, it's not like nowadays where it's just bad CGI. That was pretty dang good for 1948, you know. So um, the the uh, I was I was going to I totally blank. It'll come back to me. Sorry. I also like the animation sequence in the title sequence. With, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I get a big kick out of that. Uh, and again, it, it hasn't lost any of its charm uh, from. Uh, from a very young age to middle age to now virtually senior citizenship, uh, it, it's it still has the same charm for me that it always had. Well, uh, to I, that, I do want to mention I did get to see this one theatrically at the Alamo. It was a cereal party, which means they had a spread of cereal and milk. But the yeah. the audience composition varied age wise. There were kids in there. There were middle aged people like me, older people. Everybody laughed. Everybody was into it. Of course, you hear the crunching of cereal, but it was just this has a very broad appeal, not just across time, but across generations, because it's just it's such a good balance. 
I agree. And and I yep. think the peop, the only people who aren't going to uh, enjoy this in my mind are the people who say, I can't watch it because it's in black and white. And quite frankly, anybody who feels that strongly about black and white movies doesn't have the same mindset or anywhere near the same mindset that I do. Cause I just love movies and, and I'm not going to let color or black and white be the deciding factor of right. what quality is. Uh, and I think people who are closed minded are the only ones who are going to have a problem with it. Right. So I, the only thing I have to question, and I I've asked this question before I asked my dad is when they, when they, when the two boxes are the two crates are delivered, right. And they bring them to McDougal's house of horrors, right. And they're opening them up and they're going through there. What happens? McDougal arrives with the insurance guy who says, my company inspected them when they left. The stuff, it was in there. Who? Who inspected? the? Because the, the coffin is there. It's just mm-hmm. empty. The guy is saying, nope, there are bodies in there. Who in Europe was looking and said, <laughs> yep, that's Dracula's body. That's a Frankenstein's monster. Creak that stuff up and ship it to America. I like, was always under the impression in my head canon uh, that <laughs> McDougal kept saying it's the real Frankenstein monster and Dracula. Yeah, right. But that, but that the insurance people, as far as they were concerned, it was like a wax museum type exhibit. I always just felt like for some reason that the insurance people never bought into them being the real. Well, but I'm saying, but he piece. says that they checked them and they both were in there. Like the guy literally says, my company checked them and they were both in. The, like what? Like you, 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 um, I, I have been to a, to, to Madame Tussauds and stuff like that. Like, I don't care how good your wax works is. If you can't tell. And so they're definitely checking the Dra- The Dracula is being checked at night when there's no sunlight or anything because, oh, he burst into flames and the Frankenstein's monster. I guess he must not smell like a bunch of dead bodies sewn together. And then like whatever else happened to him that, and I, I say that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, because that's to me is always like, well, you got to you got to buy into the fact that it's going there. It's like you ever watch a movie and you're like, wow, that's unbelievable. Like you believe the first like that would be like saying I'm watching Fast X and I'm not buying it. But you bought the first nine of them and, the, and then, you know, the other one. But you're you're drawing a line at now. You can't jump a car between buildings. That's not in 10. That's in like seven. But well, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just one of those things. It's like I always said, like, wait, who's shipping this thing? You know, kind of thing. Like, <laughs> but to, to me as a kid, my always thought was like, well, Dracula shipped himself. You know, that's what it was. It was Dracula or Renfield or whoever being the, the merchant on the other end who's shipping them, right? And it's like all part of this master plan. But it just always kind of strikes you like, well, so this guy now has to, this, this guy got a job at an insurance company, worked a few years, got up to that middle management level, wherever he needed to be. So he can then ship Dracula and the Frankenstein monster to Florida. So they can then turn it into whatever Dracula's plan is. It's not as clear as, uh, like satanic rights of Dracula where he's going to like, you know, infect the entire world. But, you know, so I will know, I will no prize that in that Dracula used his powers of hypnosis that when he opened up the coffins, he convinced them that either they were dummies or whatever he wanted to let convince them that they were, everything was kosher. And that way they were to get shipped up. At least it had happened at night though. It couldn't have been like, let's pull these things out in the light. Let's see what this thing looks like. You know, (laughs) that's the line he says to me. Let me get a good look at you in the light. That's what uh, he said after uh, uh, Sandra and and, uh, and uh, Joan both leave. And he's like, oh, never mind. You know, and he like he pulls them like, let me get a good look at you in the light. When Sandra's standing there. (laughs) Obviously. Anyway, but yeah, no, this, this, you know, if if that's all we can do. You know, if that's all we can kind of like nitpick at this thing, you know, it's it, and and it's not being oh okay, I want to be it's not like me saying oh my god, what a plot hole. Like that's just like you have you believe it. Like you're willing to believe that there's a, were- a wolf man, a Frankenstein's monster, a Dracula. You're willing to buy and there's a visible man at the end, voiced by voiced by Vincent Price. You're willing to buy all of that, but not that they could ship him. So <laughs> anyway. Now, an interesting aspect of this is that apparently Lon Chaney Jr. did not enjoy being in this movie and yeah. felt that it lessened the horror movies that because they were making fun of them. Uh, and I think the at least 
for me personally, the impact was exactly the opposite because I saw this before I saw the Universal movies. And this is what opened that door to me that I wanted to see those. Mm. So, you know, it, it didn't lessen the Universal movies for me. It made the Universal movies all the more desirable for me. So, yeah. again, just from my own personal experience, I could say Lon Chaney Jr. was could, could not have been more wrong. Here's why I think he was wrong. They made some clever choices in this one. Like, I'll use an example. Wilbur's at the boat, right? Ready to escape. Untie the boat. Yes. <laughs> well, the one else has gone back up and he's like, uh-uh, I'm out. I don't want to go back up there again, which I thought was smart considering he's like, they're going after my brain. So why am I going to go back up there and like give them what they're looking for, which is me. Let me leave. There's a certain smart to that piece. Yeah, there's there's some cowardice and stuff you can you can argue, but you can also say too like, okay, he's the target. Why would the target stay there? When Bella Lugosi's Dracula's reaching out to mesmerize him and pull him back in. I love that the immediate choice wasn't the silly cartoony he's now all of a sudden completely mesmerized right away. It was a multi-step process. Like he was not giving into it at first. Um, it wasn't like he was completely without will or completely without. I like how they gradually built to eventually he gave into that. Those are exa- there's small things like this sprinkled throughout the film. Other examples we could point out where you didn't go to slapstick. You kept comedy in there while at the same time keeping this sense of what the monsters were and what the danger was. And that's the piece where I disagree with him, too. I, I, I liked the humor. I think, uh, as was mentioned earlier, that was part of the Universal Monster films. But the trick is not going too far where you lose story. You lose the sense of danger. And that was a great example of where they could have just had him immediately because it's, well, it's Wilbur, dumb old Wilbur. Let's Wilbur would be instantly mesmerized. It wasn't that. And I thought that was an interesting choice to, like, keep that. It stuck out to me as something that, uh, OK, we're we're going to balance this right out for the story. Well, I think if they'd made the monsters buffoons or really made them incompetent or really made them clumsy or, or not the, the monsters they are then he would have a point. But they, to Paul's point, they played it absolutely straight. So mm-hmm. they are the monsters we'd seen in all these other movies. So yep. in a way, they were honoring the monsters. Yeah, right. But then the other thing is, and and, and Paul kind of touched on this too, um, Cheney at this point was not in a great place, um, emotionally, mentally, whatever. And I, and I don't mean to speak ill of the man because I, I, I love Lon Chaney and, and, you know, all this, his movies, is, you know, some of his stuff that most people don't even talk about, like movies like Spider Baby and stuff like that, which is just amazing. The problem was, even when he was on set, I want to say it was, I want to say it was during The Mummy, like he would like, or whatever, like he would feel like everyone was challenging him. And you think I'm not serious. And he would like punch out a pane of glass and like cut himself up. Like, like just do these things. You're like, why are you doing this? No one is making fun. I think he was dealing with other demons um, that kind of were like, he was finding, I don't want to mean, he was kind of tilting at windmills. If you know what I mean. Right. You know what I think? Mean? Like it's, that's not the real problem, but like he's dealing with a problem. So he lashes out at whatever, you know, kind of thing. Like he's not, this isn't the real anger. He's mad and he's it's there's stuff there and it's below there. So, well, yeah, they're making fun of us and whatever, but they, but they weren't making fun of you. And you could see that. I, I mean, I'm again, I was not on the set obviously when they were filming, but I would have to feel that they would, you know, be when you're filming this, there's serious parts to it. Now I know there were some scenes, especially when, uh, when Wilbur's sitting on Frankenstein's lap, they <laughs> took forever to get that shot, that, that, that scene took forever. Cause he kept doing random stuff and he kept cracking people up on set. Well, cause he's like picking his nails and doing whatever, but he would purposely like, I'll put his arms around like he was going to kiss him. Like he would do things like, because that's how, that's how Costello was. But like when you know you're shooting this and there's serious scenes and like, that's a keeper cut, you know, whatever, you know, I don't know. It, I think, I think a lot of it was his judgment was, um, clouded 
trying to say this the nicest way possible about this man. So, but yeah, I think, I think we all know what I'm talking about, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, it's a sure, I think it's a shame because I don't think he got ever to a, um, he got very, even as he got to the end, near the end of his life, he never truly felt he was ever appreciated to the level he should have been. And I, I, I just feel like maybe he never quite understood how beloved he was. Mm. You know what I'm saying? By by the fans, and whether whether Universal was a bunch of jerks or not, I I can't speak to that because they probably were pretty jerky, especially since like Jack Pierce wasn't given, you know, he wasn't on contract, and like this guy, and they, and they, and they didn't want Bella Lugosi for the role here. They considered Ian Keith for the role, and they finally said it has to be Bella Lugosi. They're like, why? They go because he's Dracula, and they're like, who cares? And it's like they, like, you know, what I'm saying executives can be like that because they just don't see it past the bottom line. And if that's one of the, if that kind of like maybe colored some of his, you know, uh, and, you know, colored some of his vision of what this was, it's a real shame because it, this, this movie is still beloved. It's beloved by, you know, generations of people. It's literally one of the most influential, uh, it, this, this is, this is the blueprint for a horror comedy. Like every other horror comedy is trying to be this movie. I don't think that's that's too bold a statement. I think that's I can't think of another horror comedy that set the bar higher and still trying even Shaun of the Dead, which is literally one of my favorite movies of all time, is trying to be Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree. So. I think I, I think every horror comedy should strive to yes. equal with this movie. Does. Yes. And yes. I don't think I, I'm not sure anyone ever can. But, no. you know, you could they can do their best. Um just to, to hit on what we talk about every time, uh, the score in this movie, I think, is really solid. I think it goes between the comedy and the uh, horror, just like the movie does. Uh, and I think the feelings that, you know, it, it brings you to are, are perfect, you know, mood setters. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's an important element of this movie as well. Um, again, you know, directed really, really well. Uh, and and I just I can't say enough superlatives about this movie is really the bottom line. Yep. And again, if and this is one of the things that I always find funny is you hear people say, oh, if I'm gonna make they're gonna make their movie, right? I got an idea for a horror movie because people think making horror movies is easy. It's mm. not. And then you hear people like, well, I'm gonna do a comedy because I'm really funny. You probably aren't. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, but you know, say like to to. To do a horror comedy on purpose, like I don't mean a movie that's so bad it's it's good or so you know so bad it's funny or whatever you know. There's no not, this is not birdemic. Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but what, what the whole thing is is that every horror comedy, and I'm thinking of like even the best ones of all time, they try so hard to be this movie, and very few people can even get in the same realm of that. You know what I'm saying? Where you marry two different genres together so well that don't always fit together. This is this is the chocolate and the peanut butter. This is why this works, you know. Um, and and if you go back and look at it, like movies that are too comedy and not enough horror, they it falls flat, right? Or if it's too horror and not enough comedy, you just like that's awkward, right? Um, you know, and the other thing is too, and uh, be very, very honest here. And, and and Paul mentioned it. You know, they they have the little animation at the beginning, that little piece of like, you know, with the with the Frankenstein monster, you know, knocking on the coffins and the skeletons, or whatever. Just something as simple as that. Do you know how many people who are not fans of horror have said to me, "Oh, oh my God, I remember this movie. It's Adam Costello, Frankenstein, and the beginning. There's these there there skeletons in this Adam. I'm like, they remember the beginning because it's so iconic, right? Or they're like, oh man, I remember that movie. This is that's when they they throws the girl out the window. Like they remember bits and pieces, maybe not the whole movie, but it stays with them as a mem- as a memory from them when they're younger that they just hold on to. They love it, even if they're not as well versed necessarily in these movies as maybe we are. Right. The only other thing I wanted to throw out there, and it might be a little, I'm not say off talk, but it's here. Paul said the people who are closed minded about not, you know, maybe it could cause some movies in black and white or whatever. I'm just going to throw this out there. Those people must have truly hated the black and chrome edition 
of Fury Road then because they're like, we can be in color, and they made it black and white. Um, just throwing it out. Or Logan. Logan's another classic. If you haven't watched either one of those or, in the black and white. Or The Mist. The oh, The Mist. Yes. Yes, yes, of course. I'm just, I'm just serious, but like black and chrome. I always tell people if you've never seen the movie in, I know it's not Evan Costello. If you've never seen Fury Road in black and chrome, do yourself a favor, watch it. There's actually a silent version, or not since say silent. There's only only music and no words. That one you got to be committed to, but that one's really good too. But Evan Costello, me Frankenstein, literally definition of what a horror comedy could be, and everyone else is just trying to measure up. So. I agree totally, and on that, I'm going to say, uh, unless anybody has anything else to add, I'm going to give my rating. All right. One of the best movies of all time. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is Jaws. Yeah, yeah. Anybody? Anybody? Any dissenters in the group? (laughs) Please, please. Somebody disagree with me. Uh, You know what? In reality of things, if you think about it, like, because when you... Years ago, Paul, you and I talked about plane, trains, and automobiles, right? And we, you know, kind of thing on here. And I'd said to you, this is arguably the greatest, uh, plane, trains, and automobiles was the greatest Thanksgiving movie of all time, right? And, you know, and and it's like, it is one of the, it is one of my favorite comedies of all time. It's so funny. Abbott Costello literally fits as one of my favorite movies, period, of all time, right? It's not that it's a great comedy. It's not that it's a great... It's just literally one of my favorite movies of all time. When life is kicking you in the teeth, and life does kick you in the teeth now and then, that's the kind of movie I can watch Evan Costello and just feel good. I don't have to even, like, watch it, watch it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just hear it, like if I'm cooking or something, and it just makes you feel good. I literally wind up doing most of the movie. I can do all the lines in the movie, too, uh, because I'm nuts like that. Uh, But you know what I'm saying? But it's one of those things that just picks you up. And every one of us has a movie or movies that we can do like that. And this is one of them. It's just, it's it's your child, it's a slice of childhood. If you saw it when you're younger, it's the warm blanket, it's the comfort food, however you want to describe it, you know. Yeah, you know. I totally agree with you. I think that's that is a perfect description of it. It's it's just it's so well crafted. And and you know, you you've been talking about, you know, the horror comedy. Uh and the only one I can come up with that I'm putting close to this as far as my rankings uh is really a comedy. It's not it's 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 a spoof of the of the horror because it's young Frankenstein. That's the mm. only one that even approaches this yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, Young Frankenstein is, it's an absolute classic, but that is uh, 100 it's a comedy. It's a comedy, not, yeah. This, this movie that we're here today is a blend of comedy yeah. and horror. Yeah. That movie is a spoof of horror. Yeah. And they're both excellent in their own way. Yeah. Don't, you know, I'm not trying to mm-hmm. diminish either. They're different. They're different. Uh, but I, I, I don't, I can't think of anything that blends horror and comedy even close to the level of Evan and Costello yeah. meet Frankenstein. Yeah, we, we, we've mentioned it already here today. I think we've said, I mean, Shaun of the Dead is one of my favorite movies of all time, too. It's another one I can just watch anytime. And that might be the the closest one, because that, that is a straight-up zombie movie at times, um, mm-hmm. with full-on gore and effects and blood and the whole nine. But it is definitely a straight-up comedy at times, too, because um, it's a certain situation. But it is hard to blend them. Um, even movies, you know, that were people love, you know, you're looking like, okay, is it, you know, like movies like Arachnophobia and stuff. That's not truly, a, it's, it's comedic, but it's not, it doesn't blend it the same. It's not the same thing. It's, that's why this movie stands out. And that's why what's, you know, 70 years, or whatever later, we're still talking about it, you know? So and still another film that, sit down and watch it. Um, yeah. Sorry, Paul. Another film that it's not a horror, but does the same. It's just as successful as galaxy quest. Yes. Mm. That blend that, that, that combines and the science fiction and the comedy. Yes. Yeah, yes. so that that is, in its own way, a successor to this as far yep. as melding two different types of genres. Yeah, that's yeah, an excellent and, example. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even considered that, but that's an right. excellent example. Right, Be- yeah, because we're trying good. to think of horror, and that's 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 that's, that's the sci-fi and things. But think about that. Like, think of how hard we were thinking about movies. I mean, 
ladies and gentlemen who are listening, the 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 the, the gentlemen here, we've seen a few movies. I'm just throwing it out there, okay? That we're thinking this hard to come up with an example tells you how rare a case it is. And if you haven't seen, if you've never seen this movie, I think we just you know have sold it pretty well to you. If you have, if you haven't seen it in a while, go watch it because it is one of the things that you can sit down with, you know, from 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 what we say eight to eighty. And have no problem. There's nothing in here. You're like, oh no, my stars and garters. I can't watch this. Uh, you know, I have the vapors. No, that's from Little House. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> I think that's. I watched, I watched this twice to try yeah. and like make it a Jaws two. Um, because the reason I would say to us, I'm like, okay, we just two weeks ago we did the Wolfman. The Wolfman was like a home run, just classic. I felt like non-negotiable Jaws. I'm like, all right. So then watching this one, I'm like, it can't be Jaws. I'm like, I, I can't have everything Jaws. I mean, it's, I mean, we haven't in the time that Paul and I have been doing this together. Not everything's come out of mouth has been Jaws. But I'm like, okay, let me watch it again. And, you know, I'm feeling like, you know, is it, is it new car smell, whatever, from this one. When I watched it again, there were so many bits in there that I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really well cast. So well done. The two female leads. The bit that they had between them where they each had their own motivations for wanting Wilbur to see things their way, do things for them. Um, When they were both in the castle together and we had that bit where she was finding the Frankenstein diary or the Frankenstein notes in Mm -hmm. and the other girl was in the room catching on what was going on. Yes, we've got a comedy movie going here, but there were some real bits where you got two very smart actresses playing two very smart characters that had an engaging sequence that was going on that I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a whole subplot with them that's going on that I'm engaged by. There were so many layers to this film that are really what I think is when you've got really strong comedy. You can look back at that film and go, every time I rewatch this, I I focus on something different. I see something different. Those are my favorite comedies. It's it's the ones where it's not just this kind of static kind of surface level movie. You can I watched this movie twice in a row recently preparing for this. And on both occasions, I watched it with a very different focus on which characters I was enjoying, which characters I was kind of following their plots a little more closely and that says a lot about the quality of this film. It's Jaws for me on that alone. I'm like, I want to watch it a third time. Um, <laughs> I, I told my wife, I said, honey, I said, have you watched any Abbott and Costello? She said, I think so. I said, this is the one you got to see. It was great. And yeah. that's something where I'm motivated to now watch it a third time with somebody else because I want to watch her reaction of this film, right. uh, which that says something else where it's it's like talking with you guys has been a pure pleasure about it. Being able to now engage other people with this film is a pure pleasure. I think that says something when a movie's got that kind of appeal. Mm-hmm. No question. All right. So I think that's going to do it for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I think, you know, we, we can give no higher praise than one of the best movies ever. Uh, so I want to thank thank this panel for coming together to talk about this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we were planning to have Luke Giaconetti with us. Unfortunately, he was unable to make it. Um, if he sends me his thoughts, I'm going to put them in right here. So that would be what Luke would have thought. Um, we will be back to talk more horror movies. Uh, and I think, you know, from what we talked about before we were recording, I think we're going to, you know, focus more on the classic horror, but we may come, you know, more modern with some things. Uh, but I've already suggested to the group, and I think I got a good reaction that the next thing we're going to do is The Bride of Frankenstein. So if you, you know, people want to watch that in advance, so that you, uh, you know, I don't know exactly when we're going to record it. It may be weeks from now, it may be months from now. I don't know. Uh, but that I think will be our next get together. I want to thank uh, Dave, Sean, Jason, and Tim all for coming on here with me today. Uh, it's my pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for listening.
meal, at least, sir. We don't need it. You won't feel a thing. Am I glad to see you. Get me off here. What are you looking out the window for? Somebody else coming after me? Do you believe me now? Yes. 